I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Capehart. American exceptionalism used to be a mantra that both sides of the aisle used to tout. But after four years of Donald Trump and the January 6th insurrection, not only is that in question, but so is our standing as a democracy. In How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them, Dr. Barbara F. Walter argues that we haven't been a traditional democracy for a few years, and worse, we're following a well-worn path of anocracy and factionalism that has led many a nation to civil war. We're talking about these other countries. I'm watching what's happening in my own country, and all I could think about was, oh my God, these two factors are emerging here in my own country, and they're emerging at a surprisingly rapid rate, and people don't know what these warning signs are. In this conversation first recorded on January 26th for Washington Post Live, Walter discusses whether another civil war is possible here in the United States, and she actually has good news to share. And before I get into some of the, the, the factors that play here yeah. that predict a civil war, I want you to talk about um, the quote that we had there on the screen, where the start of it says, most Americans don't even think that it's possible that we could have another civil war. Talk more about that, and then we'll get into the specifics. Yeah, so I started writing this book in 2018 um, when people really still were, they were worried about Donald Trump, but, but um, they weren't thinking about anything beyond having a, a, a president that they didn't like. And even my colleagues at the university thought that um, this topic was misguided. Um, they didn't understand why I was writing it. They thought it was absolutely impossible and implausible. They worried that this might um, be alarmist. Um, and I didn't feel that way at all. In fact, I knew they weren't right. And the reason I, I knew it was because I'd been serving on this task force for the U.S. government. Um, I, I served on it from 2017 until 20, the end of 2021. And our job was to look at civil wars outside the United States, look at all countries around the world and come up with a predictive model for where um, political instability and, and violence might break out. We never looked at the United States. We didn't talk about the United States. We looked at places in Southeast Asia and Central Asia and the Middle East and Africa. And we put in over 30 variables. It included things that we thought might lead a country towards um, political violence and war. We included things like poverty, income inequality, how ethnically and religiously diverse a country was. And only two factors came out highly predictive. And the first was this variable that we called anocracy. That's just a fancy term for um, partial democracy. It's countries that are neither fully democratic nor fully autocratic. There's something in between. And countries become anocracies oftentimes when they're democratizing. So they're, they're moving from an authoritarian system to a democracy, or if they're a democracy and they're backsliding. And then the second factor was um, what we called ethnic 
factionalism, whether a country's population was organizing itself politically, not around ideology, so not around whether you're for tax breaks or against tax breaks, but they're organizing around racial, ethnic, or religious lines. And then the party that does that becomes predatory. Now, these terms are what the task force used. This is what we saw out in the world over decades. And then in 2018, I'm sitting in a room, we're talking about um, these other countries, I'm watching what's happening in my own country, and all I could think about was, oh my God, these two factors are emerging here in my own country, and they're emerging at a surprisingly rapid rate, and people don't know what these warning signs are. So I started writing it when I had all this information, all of this amazing scholarship. I knew about this model, and Americans did not. And so mm. I could understand why they were incredulous. Right, right. And you just laid out perfectly um, <clears throat> why your book is so interesting, but it also like, lays out your whole book and also lays out the questioning that I have for you. So let's get into specifics. <laughs> so the first factor you were talking about was the polity score, and that identifies whether a country, as you said, is transitioning to or away from democracy. What is the United States' polity score? Yeah. So the polity scale goes from a negative 10 to a positive 10. Um, the negative 10 are the most authoritarian countries in the world. That's where North Korea is, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, they're negative 10s. Positive 10s are the most democratic countries in the world. This is where Denmark, uh, Switzerland, New Zealand, Canada, and the United States was a plus 10 for, for decades and decades and decades. And then the, the, the nonprofit, the Center for Systemic Peace, which collects data um, and, and crafted this anocracy measure, um, it downgraded the United States for the first time in 2016. So it went from a plus 10 um, to a, a plus eight. Um, and it downgraded it for a variety of reasons, but, but one of the reasons was that international election observers were here for the 2016 election, that's, that's common, um, and they deemed our, our election free, but not entirely fair. Partisan, there was partisan politics involved um, in the elections. Even our intelligence agencies um, uh, announced uh, that Russia had attempted to meddle in those elections. So there are a variety of reasons for that. Um, the U.S. was downgraded again in 2019 to a positive seven. And that was a result of the Trump administration, the executive branch of our government, refusing to respond to requests by Congress um, for information and refusing to respond to subpoenas. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, but it was. The, the main check on executive power here in the United States is our legislative branch. It's Congress. It was designed to be of equal strength as the executive branch, but our executive branch, our president here in the United States, has been becoming significantly more powerful than any other branch for the last few decades. Um, and when you have a president refusing to respond to Congress, um, uh, that is a clear sign that we do not have a balanced system of, of checks. And then um, by the end of the Trump administration, we were downgraded to a plus five, 
negative between negative five and plus five is this anocracy zone. This is that middle zone, um, which we have found is the most unstable and most violent prone place for countries. And the U.S. was downgraded by the end of the Trump administration because you had a sitting president who questioned the results of the election and attempted to overturn those results, attempting to prevent the peaceful transfer of power. You yeah. write in your book, we are no longer the world's oldest continuous democracy. That honor is now held by Switzerland, followed by New Zealand, and then Canada. We are no longer a peer to nations like Canada, Costa Rica, and Japan, which are all rated a plus 10 on the Polity Index. So you just, just said that the United States has been upgraded. So it's been upgraded from plus five to? Plus eight. So that statement is still correct. Um, so the U.S., the last time the U.S. was a plus five was in 1800. And, and once we dropped down from being a full democracy, our, our tenure as the longest standing consistent democracy mm -hmm. ended. So let's talk about the, this, the, the second factor when you were talking about factionalism. Yeah. And you say in the book that politics goes from being a system in which citizens care about the good of the country as a whole to one in which they care only about members of their group. Talk more <laughs> about why that is particularly threatening to democracy. Yeah, I'm going to give you an example, Jonathan. Um, if, if you think back to the former Yugoslavia, um, back around 1989, 1990, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Yugoslavia suddenly had the opportunity uh, to, to pick whatever government it wanted. And, and Yugoslavs wanted democracy. And so suddenly they were organizing uh, competitive elections. It was looking like this was going to, uh, uh, the country was going to democratize quickly. Um, uh, it was, in fact, during that time, it moved from an authoritarian regime under Tito to this, this middle zone. Um, and people were incredibly hopeful. And you had these um, leaders, think about Slobodan Milosevic. Um, he had been a former uh, Communist Party member. He had um, been uh, a ruler in the former government during the Soviet era. Um, he suddenly finds himself um, unhinged, uh, untethered from, from a party. And, and suddenly he has to make a decision, how do I compete in elections? Yugoslavs at the time hated communists. They knew Milosevic was a tried and true communist. He, Milosevic knew they were not going to elect him. And so being very savvy, being very strategic, he started thinking, okay, how can I gain support? And he realized that the biggest ethnic group in the former Yugoslavia were Serbs, and he was a Serb. And so he started to hammer home this narrative that Serbs have to band together during uncertain times, during times of rapid change. Um, Serbs had to band together and they had to support a Serb leader. And if they didn't do this, then the Croats were gonna do that and the Croats were gonna come to power. And once the Croats were in power, they were gonna throw all the Serbs out of their jobs and potentially start killing them like some 
Croats had done during World War II. And so he crafted, um, you know, an ethnic party based solely on being Serb. And it's a smart thing to do if you if you want to guarantee support, because if, if you ensure, if you convince people that they can only vote for a Serb, then no matter what you do, if you're a Serb leader, they're going to support you because there's nowhere else for them to go. And you know, that sounds really familiar. Um, it sounds like what Donald Trump did and continues to do um, as the still sort of titular head of, of the Republican Party. And that leads to uh, mm -hmm. another factor that you write about, and that is the, the downgrading of status of a once yeah. favored group. That's what you were getting at there with the Serbs yeah. and the Croats. But we're going through that here in the United States. And we have an audience question um, yeah. that is tied to this notion. And the question is, do you think the civil war some Americans are aiming for is between white and black people, not between Democrats and Republicans? It is absolutely between white and non-white people. Um, it's not between Democrats and Republicans. Um, and, and I'll give you a little historical perspective and then I'll talk about what's happening here in the United States. So, you know, I've been studying civil wars around the world for, for 30 years. There's an incredibly rich body of research about um, who starts civil wars and how they start. And it's, it's not how people think. Um, the people who tend to start wars are not the poorest groups in society. They're not the groups that are most uh, discriminated against or most oppressed. They're not the immigrants. Um, those groups tend to be too weak and too disempowered to have any chance to organize. The groups that tend to start wars, especially ethnic wars, are groups that had once been dominant and have either recently lost power or they see themselves losing power demographically over time. They're the ones who feel this deep sense of loss, loss of status. They feel this deep sense of resentment. And importantly, they truly believe that the country is theirs, um, that, that the country should um, should look like them. It should practice their religion. It should be based on their culture because it's always been like that. And I'm speaking about when I say this, it sounds like I'm I'm talking. I'm I'm, I'm being informed entirely by the United States. But this <laughs> yeah. research was done decades ago. If you look at the Muslims in Southern Mindanao. Um, Southern Mindanao had been a Muslim majority region <clears throat> of the Philippines forever. Um, and then they became part of the Philippines. The Philippines is is heavily Catholic. Um, it's also far more populated than Mindanao. And, and when the government started creating incentives for Catholics to move south, to settle in Mindanao, uh, and gave them some of Mindanao's rich land, um, gave them some of the best civil service jobs. Um, the Muslims saw their influence and their power, their political power, their economic power, the cultural power declining. And they tried to work within the system, um, but they were grossly outnumbered and eventually extremists within their group um, formed um, formed a military and began to, mm -hmm. to fight the central government um, to try to, to regain power. And, and you could look at the Catholics in Northern Ireland. You could look at the Palestinians um, in Israel. You could look at the Assamese in India. You see this again and again and again.
This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. And so then um, in the United States, I mean, it's really interesting to hear you say when you initially that, you know, it could be torn from the headlines from what we're going through right now. But it is, as I said in the intro, a well-worn path. I want to read something else from your book for those who might have a copy. It's page 116. Um, you write, before autocracy came about when military generals launched coups, but now it's being ushered in by the voters themselves. This is happening in large part because social media allows candidates to sow or capitalize on doubts that citizens might have about democracy as a form of government. You write a lot about the impact of social media and how social media is partly or largely to, I use the word, to blame for the rise of, of autocracy and the rise of people choosing authoritarianism either at the ballot box or willingly choosing authoritarianism, making it possible for tanks not even to be necessary. Mm -hmm. So I'm gonna give you an example that's pretty shocking um, and most people don't know about. Sweden, we think of Sweden as this model democracy um, and in many ways it is. But Sweden, like many white majority countries, has been um, a going through a, a demographic change with, with uh, greater immigration. And in fact, in Europe in 2015, they had uh, a large influx of refugees, many from Syria, some from Afghanistan, um, as a result of the wars. Um, so these white majority countries have, have been experiencing demographic change. Sweden has had a neo-Nazi party forever, probably since the end of World War II. <clears throat> um, and it's called the Sweden Democrats. The Sweden Democrats were a fringe party. Nobody really had heard of them. Um, they couldn't get their message out. Um, they were inconsequential. And the reason they couldn't get their message out was because um, Sweden television, Swedish television and Swedish radio refused to have them on. They couldn't get any um, platform there. And even the Swedish Postal Service, uh, for the most part, refused to, um, to mail any of their leaflets. So, so they were operating essentially um, you know, by, in back rooms where nobody mm -hmm. knew about them. That changed in the late 2000s. And remember the smartphones started <clears throat> coming on the scene in the mid 2000s. Um, you, you started to see much more uh, uh, greater internet penetration. You saw um, the rise of social media and people increasingly getting a majority of their news from social media. 
um, which of course is entirely unregulated. You could put anything you want on social media. And not only that, um, the recommendation engines will take um, the, the material that holds people's attention the longest, which tends to be those that tap into the emotions of hate and anger and fear. So the more incendiary material gets dispersed much more widely. So the Sweden Democrats are struggling. Nobody knows about them. They're not gaining any traction. And they have a new leader come to power who's, who's younger, and he decides that he's going to create a bunch of Facebook pages. Um, and then he also creates a bunch of kind of We'll call them news sites. That's a very generous term. Um, but <laughs> news sites online where, where he starts, um, he and his team start spewing anti-immigrant stories. Um, every story is about an immigrant um, robbing an old lady <clears throat> or hordes coming in and, and, and uh, you know, not, not adhering to Swedish culture. It's one story after another after another. And those sites... Uh, got an enormous following. By 2014, the Sweden Democrats were the third largest party in parliament, um, where, where they are today. Um, and this this went amazingly fast. And, and in the absence of social media, they would never have been able to do that. Right. And in fact, you're right. It took a mere nine years for, for them to go from obscurity to having seats in parliament. You also make the point about how, you know, internet penetration, um, you know, in places like North Korea or Africa was minimal and that you're right, access to the internet, to the internet began to increase in Africa in 2014. Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter made inroads in Sub-Saharan Africa starting in 2015. And as they did, the level of conflict began to rise. So now let's look um, here, specifically at the United States. Yeah. Um, are we already experiencing a modern civil war, given all the factors that we've been talking about now for the, for the last 20 minutes? Yeah, yeah. So in the book, I talk about how the next civil war will not look like the first civil war. And I, and I do think one of the reasons why most people thought that um, this could never happen again here is because they were thinking about the 1860s. They're thinking that it's going to be two large armies meeting on a battlefield, wearing uniforms. It's going to be, you know, a, a whole series of, of states that will have to be uh, agree that secession is the way to go. And that is not what it's going to look like at all. And in fact, that's not what most modern civil wars look like, especially when they're directed at really powerful governments with powerful militaries, like the United States, or like Israel, or like the United Kingdom. You're not going to see another big conventional war in these countries. What you are going to see, um, and what I, what I think would happen here in the United States, would be an insurgency. So insurgencies tend to be decentralized. They tend to be fought by multiple different factions, paramilitary groups, Sometimes they're working together. Sometimes they're competing with each other, um, and they're they're using unconventional tactics, predominantly um, domestic terror directed at civilians, directed at minority groups, directed at civil servants, directed at police. Anybody who is not sympathetic to their cause, they are not going to engage um, U.S. soldiers if they can avoid it. So that's the type of civil war we're, we're likely to see. And oh, 
go ahead if you want to. I wanted to bring up something from uh, a former member of the task force that has an, op an opposing view. Uh, Jay uh, Ulfelder said recently yeah. in, an in an interview with the Harvard Gazette that civil war is really unlikely to happen based on the definition that outlines a thousand deaths tied to war activity. Do you think we're on the brink of seeing violence that amounts to that death toll, especially given what you were just saying in terms of insurgency rather than military? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, in a country as as populous as the United States, a thousand deaths um, related to um, an insurgency a year is, is not very high. I mean, think about uh, Timothy McVeigh's attack in Oklahoma City. That was over 200 people. You have a couple of, you have, you know, a handful of attacks like that in a year. And, and you meet not only the conventional definition of civil war, um, but, but, Experts, we, we think about it as, as there's major civil war, which is a thousand deaths a year, and there's minor civil wars, which is about 25. So you have, you know, four attacks like Timothy McVeigh's in a year, um, and you reach um, what we consider a, a major conflict. Um, and I wanted to go back to a question you asked earlier that I that sure. I didn't answer yet, and that is, are we in an insurgency? And um, no, we are not yet. People wondered if January 6th was the start of it, and mm -hmm. we now know that it, it wasn't. But we also know that the, the far-right militias <clears throat> um, haven't gone away. Um, if anything, they've doubled down. Um, they, are, they are angry. They are resentful. Um, they they uh, absolutely believe the election was stolen from them. And... Um, and you know, the more extreme elements believe that the only way to to improve things, and they see this as an improvement, is, is through violence. So the CIA actually has a manual um, on insurgency. Um, and again, the CIA only looks outside the United States. This was something that they put together because they're interested in trying to understand why and when insurgencies break out in countries outside the United States. Um, mm -hmm. And they're particularly interested in identifying that because um, they want to know if they need to design um, counterinsurgency campaigns. But their 2012 manual is open source. You wow. can find it online. Um, most of it actually is not redacted. It's really interesting to read. And you have the same deja vu feeling when you're reading that manual as when you're, you're, you're hearing about the task force predictive model. You're reading that manual and they're talking about insurgency as going through three phases. There's the pre-insurgency phase, there's what they call the incipient conflict phase, and then there's open insurgency. So the pre-insurgency phase, stage one, is when you have a group um, that's unhappy with the status quo <clears throat> and they're beginning to organize. Um, leaders are emerging who are able to articulate what they're unhappy about. They start recruiting supporters. Um, um, you know, sometimes they'll put together a manifesto about what they're angry about and what they want. So it's the very early stages mm -hmm. of organization. The incipient conflict stage, stage number two, is when these groups get a militant arm. That's when they start creating militias. And this is the stage when you start to get your very first attacks. 
And what's mm. really dangerous about this phase, and the CIA lays this out, they're telling them the U.S. government, they're saying what's what's dangerous about stage two is that governments who uh, governments in these countries and citizens in these countries, um, they see these attacks and they see them as isolated incidences. Yeah. They dismiss them. They're the result of a lone wolf. They're not going to happen again. So they aren't able in stage two to connect all the dots. And Barbara, real quickly, because we now have we have 90 seconds left, but I want you oh, to, yeah. I know, I know, we get to talking <laughs> and then the time just flies. But I do want you to, to real quickly talk about um, um, phase three. And then I have a final yeah. question that we're going to be completely over time with, but I have to ask it, but real fast. Yes. So phase three is when you start to see a consistent series of attacks, um, it, you know, it, it, so that it's it's impossible to think um, that these are isolated. You also start right. to see these groups rec recruiting from the military, recruiting from um, police forces. They're looking for experienced hmm. um, soldiers and you see some of them going abroad for, for training. And so they're really ratcheting up the military arm and they're starting to coordinate their activities. So when I said we were wondering if January 6th was the start of that, what the the what we were wondering was, okay, are we now going to see a series of sustained attacks mm -hmm. as opposed to an isolated attack here and then, and, which is more indicative of stage two? Right, and so and so far we haven't seen sustained attacks. Uh, we have one more audience question, and real real quickly, the question is: Are there examples of countries who have been at our level of approach to civil war where it has been? averted? And if so, how? I'm just going to ask you if there is a country, um, not the if so, how, because we're way over time. I but know. Have I'm so sorry. No, 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 no. This is fantastic. Have there been countries that have been able to avert civil war? Yes. Jonathan, there was a country that was far, far worse off than us, and it did, and it was South Africa. Um, I mean, think back to the apartheid regime, a, a minority regime that was not only deeply oppressive, um, but was was ratcheting up violence against civilians, killing children. Um, we thought everybody thought we were going to have a civil war there, and they were able to avoid it. That is a, a, a fabulous example. Dr. Barbara F. Walter, author of How Civil Wars Start and How to Stop Them. Thank you so much for coming to Capehart on Washington Post Live. Great to see you again. Nice to see you too, Jonathan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Julie Deppenbrock. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.